Hey everyone, my name is Juan Clark. I'm a second year MHA student in the Sloan Program in Health Administration, and I'll be your host for The Health Conscious. The Health Conscious is a podcast that was started by students in the Sloan Program in Health Administration at Cornell University. The podcast was created to educate our audience by providing a stimulating discussion on the U.S. healthcare industry and how it works. We'll be interacting with professionals in various sectors of healthcare to hear their career matriculation, perspectives of the current state of healthcare, and key challenges and solutions to address them. As always, we want to thank all of our listeners for their continued support, and we hope you enjoy today's episode. Today, we're joined with Josh Dumas, who is a 2020 graduate of the Sloan program at Cornell, and he currently serves as a center director for the Mid-Atlantic region at Chin Med. Good morning, Josh. How are you? I'm doing all right. Good morning. Good morning, Juan. Thanks for having me. Of course. Would you mind sharing a bit of your career journey with the listeners? Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it's it's funny. You know, my career is technically still in its early stage. You know, we're we're just getting started, but you know, it feels like we've had so much packed into my career already. Um, I kind of forget that I'm still technically in early careers, but uh, you know, really just starting from the beginning. Um, you know, I uh, am currently living in North Carolina. Um, I'm living in North Carolina right now uh, uh, as a center director for ChenMed, but I'm originally from Bridgeport, Connecticut. Um, my first healthcare experience was in Connecticut, and you know, I started off actually for a nonprofit health consulting firm right before I got into grad school, and and I wanted to make sure that I had at least a little bit of healthcare knowledge um, before I went into grad school and you know explored this world of the healthcare business. Um, you know, before I even entered you know uh, uh, healthcare, I was working in the nonprofit education world, um, which you know equally tied to my why and what really fulfilled me. But, you know, once I realized I wanted to work a career in healthcare, it was fun to find a way to just touch it and understand it. And, you know, I was really fortunate after grad school to, you know, have a wonderful internship through, through our program. Um, and with Kaiser Permanente out in Oakland and, you know, accepted a fellowship uh, once we graduated uh, in Northern California with Sutter Health um, and, you know, had the wonderful opportunity to come uh, back over to the East Coast with Chen Med and uh, to Miami uh, as a leadership fellow there. And, you know, a couple of more, couple of promotions in the company internally and a couple of moves later. Uh, here we are back in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Wow. Well, you've definitely been all around from Miami to Charlotte, being from Connecticut, even to California. So uh, really kind of cool to be able to kind of see you move around the, the country in that aspect. Um, so you, you touched on it briefly, but I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit more about your why and have you been able to maintain the integrity of your why throughout your journey in healthcare? Yeah, you know, um, I, I I wouldn't have chose a career in healthcare if it wasn't for a very intentional reason. You know, there's a lot, I think there's a lot of other industries where you can make good money and, you know, not have to have your heart strings tugged all the time. Um, right. But I think you know, because of the fact that my, my heart is so close to healthcare is the reason why I'm here. You know, growing up in Bridgeport is really interesting. You know, uh, whenever I tell people I'm from Connecticut, it's, you know, it's almost a shock. You know, you don't really see many minorities when you think Connecticut, when you think Fairfield County, you don't really think black kid from the ghetto, right? Um, you think Fairfield County, you think, you know, the, the one percenters and where the richest people in the world have their homes and their summer homes and, you know, and and that's what it is. And then you have, you know, the few cities in, in Connecticut, like like Bridgeport and and others, where it's a vast difference, right? And you can literally, growing up in my city, you can drive 20 minutes up Main Street and be surrounded by mansions. And then you drive 20 minutes the opposite direction and go downtown. And everything that you imagine when you think about a ghetto is right in front of you, right? So growing up in that environment and and... And even research, there's a couple articles where like Bridgeport's like, you know, considered the most unequal place in America. 
right? So when you're growing up in an environment where disparity is clear and is right in front of you, um, and, you know, I had an amazing mother that, you know, always, you know, kept me centered and kept me grounded. And she was such an altruistic person. I wanted to figure out how can I help? How can I be altruistic too? And when you see the disparity around you, when you ask all these questions and, you know, why are things this way for my family and not for so-and-so's family up the road? You know, I went to a school um, uh, outside of my school district and got to see a completely different world that most of my friends didn't even know existed. And I'm like, hey, why don't we have these same opportunities that the the folks on my football team have in high school? And and it was this stark contrasting that I was always making. And, you know, so I said, you know what, I'm instead of asking the questions why I'm going to start, you know, hopefully finding the solutions and the answers to these questions. Um, and I told myself, you know, you know, I want to do something about this. You know, I want to make sure that that kids from communities like mine even know that there's more that we can do than than what we see in the bubbles that we live in. Um, and it just so happened that I thought healthcare was the, was the pathway to do it. Um, we had two hospitals in our community um, and they probably have not so great reputations like within like the minority community in our city. My city is like 75% black and Hispanic. Um, and, and it was so bad to the point where me, my mother, my family, we wouldn't even get care within our own city because we had the perception wow. that they did not care for us. They wanted to make money off of us, but really did not care about treating us. You know, you have, you know, hospitals that are owned by, you know, huge health systems that are smack in the hood and right next to the most dangerous communities in the city and insulate themselves versus trying to help. Um, you know, and, 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 and I wanted to do something about that. And, you know, I always felt that if anybody not only had like the resource capability, but the moral imperative to help, it was healthcare. If any industry should do it, it should healthcare. Um, so immediately that was the journey that was, it was, I'm going to work in healthcare. You know, obviously I thought that meant I was going to be a, I was going to be a doctor because, you know, you don't see any other positions anywhere, you know, you see a doctor, a nurse, and, you know, and that's all you know, you don't know about the people in suits. They're not the ones on the TV shows. They don't get movies and books and stuff. Um, but, you know, as I, started figuring out what I was good at, uh, the affinity that I had for business. And that's when it went towards, you know what, I think I want to, instead of, you know, working within a broken system, maybe I can be loud enough and drive enough people crazy to want to actually fix the system versus just pretending like it isn't broken in the first place. Um, and here we are just working our tails off to try to help as many people as possible. Wow. Um, well, one, definitely an amazing kind of perspective, especially going to, going to your community and witnessing those disparities firsthand and seeing that, again, you know, certain people in different demographics have uh, resources that, you know, you may not have have access to. So how do we help bridge that gap? And I perfect, honestly think that healthcare really sits right in the middle of that, because if nothing mm -hmm. else, healthcare is really centralized to everyone. Everyone at some point is going to need healthcare. So seeing how we can kind of close exactly. that disparity gap or, or just some of those inequities, I think is, is, is an amazing, amazing perspective to have. Yeah, man. And like when we hear about, you know, social determinants of health, you know, it's a it's a it's, probably, it's a huge buzzword right now. Right. It's it's what every hospital is talking about. It's in everybody's community needs assessment. You know, everyone's talking about social determinants of health right now, especially in the value based care world, which is what I'm working in now. But, you know, I chose healthcare because of the social social determinants. You know, it was, hey, what can I do to where I can address public safety, uh, housing insecurity, uh, food, uh, 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 education. How can I touch all of these things that keep a community running at the exact same time? Healthcare. Healthcare is right at the center of all of it because in order for healthcare to work, 
everything on those folks also have to work. Right. Um, and unfortunately, you know, most industries aren't set up like that where you can still succeed by screwing over the people. Um, you can still succeed and not really give the poorest people or the people that don't have the same privileges. You don't have to give them consideration. You can still succeed as an industry and as a business. Healthcare will not succeed if you don't figure out how to do right by people. Um, so what better industry to work in when you care so much about doing right by people? Um, and yeah, here we are. Uh, that's perfect. I think you kind of already touched on it um, a little bit. But I wanted to pivot and just uh, talk a little bit more about ChinMed. Um, so ChinMed is one of the most notable, what we would consider disruptor in healthcare. So maybe could you discuss a little bit more about ChinMed's model and why they'd be considered a disruptor in the field? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, um, before anything, I'm prefacing anything that comes out of my mouth is 100% Josh Dumas and is not ChinMed, is not my boss, is nobody. This is just Josh Dumas and Josh Dumas is raw under those three thoughts. Um, (laughs) out of the way no chairman this is a company that's um you know i've always followed since i was in sloan i was in cornell myself and you know i remember them coming to you know to give a talk about what they do and i'm like i don't really you know i wasn't never thought about going into geriatric healthcare. you know i never really thought about you know i'm gonna take care of you know you just heard my why it wasn't about i'm gonna specifically take care of seniors um but I got to learn about an organization that was so focused on doing healthcare the right way. Mm-hmm. It was all about, you know, how do we align our incentives to where we can succeed as a business, a very successful business, but how can we also make sure that our values of love, accountability, and passion, and our commitment to taking care of our most underserved populations, how can we achieve both at the exact same time? And, and value-based care and full-risk contracting was that. Um, that opportunity to incentivize providers to keep people healthy financially, you know, it, it, it just makes sense, you know. Um, and so when you're thinking about disruptors, you know, when you're changing the way healthcare is paid for and the way healthcare is financed, you're changing the way healthcare is done. Um, and and that in itself is disruption. And And we're almost in a sense, you know, I don't want to say we're anti-hospital because we have to partner with our hospitals because at the end of the day, it happens. Patients go to the hospital. We need to be able to work together. But we're definitely, definitely, definitely against anti-sick care. You know, our goal is to keep people healthy, keep people happy and keep them at home versus waiting until they get sick so that we can treat them and rack up the bill. Um, In fact, the more bill they rack up, the less money we make. And that's what makes it great. (laughs) Um, And, 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 it's awesome to to be a director in a center where firsthand you can really see the impact that you have in your patients, where we intentionally go into communities that most medical practices wouldn't want to go into. Um, you know, and we found a way to be able to do that intentionally, to be able to do that and find where are our seniors, but not only where are our seniors, but where are our most underserved and disadvantaged seniors, which just so happen to be people, communities of color. But where are these, you know, most disadvantaged communities and these most marginalized communities that we bring to them, which is great VIP concierge healthcare that doesn't cost them any more than they're already paying for their health insurance premiums. Um, so taking concierge, high quality, that elite medicine and bringing it to the people that typically would never be able to afford some kind of care like that is disruptive in its nature. Wow. 
Um, one great kind of, you know, uh, backstory on just Chin Med just in general. But one thing that you said, it really, really stuck out to me was when you change the way healthcare is financed, you change the way healthcare is done. And that, I think, literally kind of speaks volumes to an extent. Oftentimes, people just assume that, you know, you have these hospitals and they're just, you know, racking up all this this money from these bills from these patients. And they don't really necessarily care about the community or other different kind of health organizations. But oftentimes, people don't realize that, you know, um, hospitals and other health organizations survive off of insurance reimbursements. So if they're not reimbursed properly, then unfortunately, they don't really make as much money as they would um, you know, typically make to an extent. So they're not hoarding it. It just is, it works within a system. And so again, when you change exactly. the way it's finance, you change the way it's done. So. Man, I, you know, during my, my fellowship um, in center of health, I, you know, I have the privilege of, you know, working in a, you know, three campus tertiary quaternary hospital system. And, you know, I had the pleasure of, you know, serving under the preceptorship of one of the best operators I've ever met in my life. Um, and I, but I, but I was so anti-hospital going into that fellowship. Um, I had such, cause I told you about the reputation of hospitals in my own community. Right. Um, so my perspective was everyone that runs a hospital is evil. They don't care about people. They're here to take everyone's money and they just choose to look the other way and, and leaving that hospital or seeing that hospital and the things that leaders had to do because you know their job is to keep the doors open you know above all else their job is to keep the hospital running because no hospital no safety net for a lot of people um so a lot of the things were like you know in school i'm like why can't hospitals just do this and why can't hospitals just do that and why can't hospitals just do that they're all evil you know in reality because of you're only getting paid if you hit these metrics Right. You're only getting paid if you get this value. You know, we're not even going to be able, you're going to lose all of your staff if you don't hit that volume in order for us to hit that number. And right. until that part changes, you know, I, had, I, I gained that level of empathy for hospital leaders and hospital executives because they're doing what they can with the hands that they're dealt. Um, and yep. it's just the overall like system itself that needs to change versus us nitpicking at every single individual hospital that's kind of playing with with bare minimum they have right yeah um a dynamic you kind of touched on briefly was like the volume technically versus the value and so typically most hospitals operate in a fee-for-service type of nature however you all are currently in a value-based um kind of perspective so could you maybe just share just for our listeners and kind of what does value-based care what does that mean and what does that really look like yeah absolutely um you know, I guess the the simplest way when I was learning the differences between the two is, you know, you go to your hospital, um, everything that's done to you is getting billed individually, essentially. Um, you know, the more you do, the more you the more you pay for. The more you do for your patient, the more you get paid for doing. Um, and a full risk or value-based model, it's not about doing more. It's not about you get you do more, you get more. That's not what this is about in value-based care. Whereas it's more so about uh imagine I I, I use you one as an example, right? Um let's say you are the insurance company. Um I'm the provider. And I tell you one, I bet that I can take care of your people better than you can. So you just give me the money that you think it costs to take care of them. And I get to save, keep whatever money I don't spend. 
Simple as that. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and so in, in a way, value-based contracting or poor-based contracting can be a win-win where insurance companies no longer have the risk of the patient's health. The provider, the people who is actually doing the healthcare, they take on the risk, but they also take on the reward if they can also manage their health well. So the better that we can manage our patient's health, the more money we get to keep in our pockets and reinvest into our business and grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. Um, And the more power we give our physicians, because when you're putting the onus on the physicians to manage the health of the patients, now it's really about doing high quality healthcare. Right. It's not just about passing the buck along and writing a million referrals. And the patient is just in limbo forever getting sicker and sicker and sicker. This is about actually taking pride in primary care and being able to manage everyone that we're responsible for so that they can be healthier because the healthier they are, the less that they're going to go to the hospital, the happier they're going to be, the more likely they are to stay um, members of our practice, the more likely they are to recommend their family and friends to be a part of our practice. So from a value-based contracting is really awesome because it not only provides better quality care to patients, not only does it help the insurance companies keep their patients healthy without the risk falling on them, but it also creates uh, a great business opportunity for the provider and empowers physicians that chose medicine because they want to practice medicine. So it's this, and they don't have to worry about RVUs, billing, they don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Just right. take care of the patients. And and that's the awesome part about, you know, by miscontracting enchantment overall. I think that's honestly generally what doctors want to do anyway. Just take care of patients. That's what they really went to school for. That's what they're they're trained on. So I love the fact that you all get the opportunity to really kind of put that emphasis back into the daily role of of jobs. And you know what they say now, a win is a win. So we we love a win-win situations all the way around. Absolutely. We say all the time, one of our things we say every day is everyone wins when we achieve our vision here. And, you know, we mean it. We want everyone that we work with to 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 get a piece of this pie too. And that's, the, and that's the awesome part about, you know, when you align incentives in healthcare. I love it. Um, I know you you technically talked about putting pride back in primary care. So I wanted to ask uh, got a little bit about the healthcare industry. So right now there's a huge kind of transition or shift from inpatient services to outpatient services and putting more emphasis on the community outreach and meeting the patient where they generally are. So what role does primary care play in that transition? And what does that really look like at ChinMed? Yeah, this is this is a great question. And this is, you know, me speaking as a community member, as well as a practitioner. And I think, you know, hospital, you know, leaders and young careers and everyone who wants to work a career in healthcare, we need to always remember that we are also community members. So lots of times let's take a step back and look like what this is like for us if we had to navigate the health system ourselves and we didn't have the salaries that we had. Right. Um, you know, what could that look like? So when, when I hear this question, it's almost as if, uh, you know, if you're a patient, how could your primary care doctor, you know, really help you not have to have your expenses, specialty care, surgeries and all that? Think like think, And that's to me, like, that's what it just sounds like you asked. Like, how can your primary care doctor, the one that's supposed to be your first point of contact, be the one to help you not have to get sicker or not have to see a million specialists? And that is by, again, taking pride in primary care and you actually wrapping your arms around the patient and their needs and not just checking off a box. I think 
in a fee-for-service world, primary care was never seen as a high-margin service line. Um, and because it was never seen as a high-margin service line, primary care became a referral pipeline versus a care center. Um, and a full risk, and by referral pipeline, I mean, think about your experience when you go to a PCP. Oh, does your knee hurt? I'll write a referral to an orthopedic doctor. Oh, does your nose hurt? I'll write a referral to ENT. Instead of, oh, does your knee hurt? Let's work it out. Let's figure this out. Let's, let's actually, let me actually provide care. But instead, PCPs have somehow transitioned into the just churning out 50, 60 patients a day that you see for five, 10 minutes and writing a million referrals so that you can feed the volume of your high margin service lines. Right. Um, in this model, there is none of that because, again, we're fully responsible. Your primary care physician is fully responsible for everything. So he writes 10 referrals to all of these high specialty, high cost specialty of physicians. He has to pay for that. <laughs> he has to pay for that. So now he's incentivized. Let me make sure I'm actually doing everything within the full scope of my licensure. Let me actually do a couple curbside consults with our national specialists that we have to, to, to help me uh, navigate this, 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 this patient's concern instead of writing a referral that's going to take the patient 60 days for him to get into his appointment. And then it's going to take another 30 days for the insurance authorization. And, you know, instead of doing all that, what can I do for this patient right now? Right. And I think right. if primary care physicians and primary care service lines were seen and respected as a service line of clinicians that can actually treat to a high level of care now, then we'll see why and how important that transition from inpatient to outpatient actually is. It's going to make patient experiences so much better. Patient, they don't have to worry about they're, they're, they don't have to worry about staying overnight or transitioning here, 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 and here because they know they can come to their PCP for anything. Um, and 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 that's the that's the the amazing part about having and investing in your PCPs when you really do you know see your primary care physician is just as important as a surgeon as well. You'll understand how many lives a PCP can save. You know, it may not have the the glitz and the glamour and the and any of that, but when your PCP um, has your all of their patients' number locked into their cell phone and they can call them every week to check on them and say, "Hey, Miss Smith, are you okay? Is there anything I can do for you before I go on my vacation?" You know, that's what changes communities and changes lives and and, and actually fixes healthcare, not waiting for it to get worse and then just fixing it because it makes us a lot of money. Right. Let's fix it before it grows. No, wow, I really, really love that, especially kind of given that I think your your primary care really serves as like the first touch point or really kind of place where most patients just receive care just in general. And so definitely as, you know, tertiary and coordinary or sometimes even secondary specialized care gets more expensive, people are going to be relying more, again, on those primary kind of uh, care offices or really those providers to really kind of provide a certain level of care. So really kind of centralizing that saying, hey, if you come in through our doors, we're giving you the, the best care at this point in time and not having to outsource or shift to other places. I I really like that perspective a lot. Absolutely. So just want to uh, pivot just uh, again, just a little bit and talk a little bit about your, your journey after graduation, uh, because you were in a fellowship that you left to, again, pursue a career at Chin Med. So just want to maybe can you walk us through the your decision process for leaving a hospital fellowship and kind of um, going towards a industry fellowship in which you expected to gain at Chin Med that you maybe didn't get in your other fellowship? Yeah, um, 
this was at the time the absolute hardest decision I've ever made. Like it was anyone who who knew me at the time that I trusted and confided in as a mentor, that I was on the phone every day just having anxiety attacks because I didn't know what to do. Um, you know, when you go through your master's program or your health administration program, you kind of have this opinion that it's either consulting or hospital fellowship. Right. And there is no other option if you and if you don't get a consultant job or a fellowship, then you didn't succeed as a as a health administration student. Um, and even though that's not what's explicitly said, I think any health administration student that's listening to this can hear that's essentially the pressure that you're put under. Right. Um, and that was a uh, something that I fell for. And but the issue was, and you know, I talked about my why earlier. That's not a typical hospital CEO's why. You know, I didn't say once that I wanted to be a CEO of anything. I didn't say once that I wanted to be an executive of anything. Um, and so I found myself, you know, around peers who are amazing. They're 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 great. They're going to be a, a, a incredible hospital operators. But I found myself, you know, in my peers of of those folks that will explicitly say they want to be hospital executives, and hospital CEOs, and even though I felt. Like I didn't 100% align with the same folks that are pursuing the same opportunity that I'm pursuing. You know, I felt like that was the only thing that I can actually choose. Um, choose, And at the end of the day, fellowships are great opportunities. They're amazing opportunities to, to build relationships, to go into an organization and see it from the top down, right? You know, usually when you're starting from the bottom up, it's hard to really understand what's happening at a at a at a larger scale or at a at a at a total level, um, versus when you're a fellow, you really get to see the entire organization from the top down. And it helps so much in terms of building your own strategic plan for your life or understanding how healthcare in itself works and even building relationships that'll give you an amazing job after your fellowship or working on some high, high, high level or high visibility projects. Um but for me, when I went into my my fellowship and you know, I found myself, even though I'm I'm managing a small department, as soon as I get there, you know, it's smack in the middle of COVID. You know, we I'm I feel like I'm, you know, I'm you know, I'm wearing my suit every day, you know, I am suit and tied up. I'm I have my offices on the penthouse of the hospital. I feel amazing, right? It's it, it's great. And every single meeting we had talked about FTEs and cutting costs and I don't think I used the word patient once wow. for like my first month there. And I'm mind you, I am growing so much as a business leader. You know, I told my mentor was one of the strongest operators I've ever had in my life. Mm. But at the exact same time, I'm not getting that fulfillment that I was looking for because that's why I joined healthcare in the first place. I didn't yeah. join healthcare to be a good business person. Um, and it took me a very long time to be honest with myself about that. Um, and it, it, it just so happened that the opportunity with uh, with ChenMed kind of presented itself. I was networking. I really wanted to understand how a company um, like ChenMed could, you know, I'm seeing all these articles on LinkedIn about how ChenMed succeeding financially um, in the middle of COVID and it didn't make sense. So I'm contrasting what I'm experiencing in the hospitals where everything's about saving money to this small primary care company Chenbed that's apparently killing it financially. I just wanted to understand how that was possible. You know, I I just reached out to folks that I saw work for Chenmed on LinkedIn and and 
asked to connect and learn more. And I was like, wow, I didn't know this thing was real. Like I didn't know that, you know, <laughs> healthcare companies actually did this. Um, and, you know, it turned into an opportunity and I'm grateful. And, you know, I learned that the opportunity was going to be something where it was going to intentionally ask me, prepare me to be a strategic and operational leader in the company. Um, and, and I wanted that intentionality and I wanted that push. Um, I wanted that, that, alignment with my values you know uh i wanted to know that me working my tail off for my job wouldn't be in conflict with me working my tail off to feel fulfilled mm-hmm. um and i think as i've been navigating my early journey that's been my focus is ensuring that this drive that i have to grow professionally always aligns with this passion that i have to take care of people and the moment that I feel like there is no alignment, I need to make a pivot. And that's something that I hope that I can maintain and I can hold myself accountable to that for my entire career, because I'm sure that that decision point will be presented to me more than once, more than twice. And probably, you know, and I am hope to maintain my integrity enough to to keep my values, you know, so close to me that I never compromise them in pursuit of a promotion um, or in pursuit of an opportunity. Um, but yeah, that's a little bit of a tangent, but I don't know, but here we are. <laughs> that's it. Now, I mean, well, first I would definitely acknowledge the amount of courage and strength it really takes to be able to, you know, transition out of that traditional model of either hospital or consulting, and then look at really what else is really kind of in healthcare. So similar to you, even in, you know, 2022, now that I'm, I'm a second year, we're all really, again, looking at Yes, there is a traditional hospital, there is traditional consulting, but what does a bigger or broader healthcare industry have to offer and where do we kind of fit within that? So I think now it's much more acknowledgement or much more presence inside the different healthcare industries than it typically is from our our roles. But again, you know, you did that in, in 2020. So I can imagine that was just a, a, a large amount of courage it really took to transition out of that. But, you know, hearing your, your why and, and how you did that, your decision process through that was, I think it's definitely very helpful to a lot of people listening. Um, So since you were actually finishing, man, you've also held numerous different roles. And, you know, you've even talked about moving from <laughs> Miami to North Carolina and stuff. So uh, what attributes do you have or have you developed while your time that that made you so successful? Well, I have learned how to how to live out of a suitcase. Oh no, I <laughs> I said I I I have been so fortunate, you know. Um, you know, as an early careerist, you know, I tell anyone that reaches out to me is when you are young and you don't have a lot of the personal ties to a geography, opportunity becomes so much almost endless, and you just need to work you know once you once you're willing to work and you don't have to be tied to a certain geography so many doors open um so one thing i've learned was just how to be amiable you know how to be willing to change and adapt on a dime um because if that door opens i promise you i was running through it i wasn't questioning myself i wasn't maybe i was i was questioning myself still ran through <laughs> um and and that's almost part of the culture here in this company where if you're willing to work, you know, if it's, it's very meritocratic in that sense, where those that work, you know, grow. Um, and so I came in as a fellow in this company and, uh, you know, as a leadership fellow and had the opportunity to really understand analytics um, and really dive into our company's analytics and understanding our data. And, you know, the whole idea was before you become an operator, understand the data that drives our operations. 
Um, if you can understand how to diagnose based on where your KPIs and leading indicators are, then you'll be able to actually solve the problem. Um, versus being an operator that's constantly spinning wheels because you don't understand how to analyze and interpret the data. Um, and that was how I experienced the, my, 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 my opportunity. And, you know, so my first opportunity was actually to go to Jacksonville, Florida and, and support a couple of our centers that needed some support operationally. And because I was really familiar with their data, you know, I had an opportunity to go there and, and, and lead. And I love people. I'm, I'm, I'm me and, I was able to inherit its staff and and we're just gonna have a blast while we're gonna take care of these people. Let's have some fun and we're gonna take care of these people. Um and that and that's my mentality in my in our in our in our offices. And but that opportunity turned into interim director opportunities in uh, in Lakeland, Florida. Um another interim director opportunity back in Jacksonville. And you know, super fortunate as our company has been growing, so I have opportunities and you know, we expanded into the mid-Atlantic uh, region, what we call our mid-Atlantic region, which is North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. Um, and I was tapped to be one of our center directors to open uh one of our first clinics in Charlotte. Um so that was a you know a great opportunity. And you know, it was a lot of change, a lot of different cultures you have to adapt to, a lot of different teams you have to build the trust uh, of and 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 you have to do it all with grace and with a smile on your face and 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 with that grit at the same time at all times. But it was it's been it's been great. I'm blessed. Um it's been a journey so far and uh you know my my uh airline rewards points are very happy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm about positive they are i'm sure but um I, I really liked how you touched on again being you know amiable being able to be flexible in different environments or different roles that you may kind of enter into healthcare if nothing else during the pandemic has taught us all that you have to be flexible you know no two days will really look the same so you have to be able to kind of uh, adapt to the environment and then another point that you made was kind of combining that operator mindset while also being data-driven and that's, I yep. think, where, like, you know, you really get a lot of analytical and technical leaders who are really able to apply or interpret a lot of that data and really kind of see what that really looks like on a day-to-day basis. So I, I like that dynamic that you spoke about. Yeah, and 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 I think one of the most underrated skills, and this is something that's developed, I've always considered myself a people person. Um, I've always, because I think, you know, I, I, I my, my life's vision is to take care of people. So obviously it makes sense that being around people works, right? Right. Um, but when you are moving from city to city to city and you are, you know, each clinic had a different culture, had a different situation. Since some might need a lot of support culturally, some had a great culture. And, and how do you not disrupt that culture? Right. So, you know, to be a leader and be able to check your ego at the door and serve, you know what I mean? And like instead of like, I'm going to come here and bring this, it's I'm going to come here and serve these people. That's uh for a lot of type A suits or like you know type a a health executives or you know it's hard to check your ego at the door and not think about what you're about to bring to the table right or you know what i mean but when you're going into an environment of frontline staff who are working eight to ten hours a day um not making anywhere near as much as the executives in the company and they are huffing and puffing every day for me to go in there suit and tied up and and all right guys this is what you guys are going to do that 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 that's not going to build the trust with the team to where they're going to actually work happily you know what i mean like where they're going to work happily and over time and when you're when you're bouncing around 
the way that you have to build that trust changes. So it changes because no group of people is the same. And as a leader, you know, you learn to flex to the needs of everybody that you're interacting with um, versus just kind of just walking in and and saying, here, guys, here's what we're going to do. Right. Um, now, it took it took a lot of mistakes and a lot of feedback and a lot of mentorship. It's I come in here and it's what is it that you need and how can I support that? Um, you know, my job as a leader is to remove barriers. That's it. You're doing the healthcare. I haven't, I haven't given a single, I've gushed about Chet Med and healthcare. I haven't taken care of a single patient. <laughs> and and I think as health leaders and health executives, as long as we remember that we're not actually doing the healthcare, um, and that skill, reminding yourself that is a skill. Because we get it gets when you, you feel like Thanos a bit, you have all the power in your hand because you, the money flows through you. It all flows through you, but we're not doing the healthcare and building that skill to be able to remind yourself that every time you're serving someone, um, it just takes time and intentionality. Wow. I would say, you know, it's, it really takes a lot for a leader to kind of acknowledge the power dynamic that kind of exists oftentimes within either corporate spaces or even clinical spaces. And so we talk about the whole suits versus scrubs type of uh, mentality mm-hmm. where, you know, they assume that, you know, people in suits are super just going to come in and tell them exactly what to do. But in reality, that same dynamic also exists in our corporate spaces as well. And so sure. showing how, again, you can either be a leader or you can be on the front lines. You can be, for example, even a receptionist. But how, do, again, do you really garner the trust of all those that are part of the team and and, and acknowledge that to an extent? So I, I really liked your, your kind of perspective on that. Well, I appreciate it. But uh, just to wrap up, I just want to see for any of our listeners who may be graduating uh, next May or very similar to yourself and kind of early in their career. Do you have any advice for them? Yeah, again, um, you know, I, again, I, I don't know if I'm qualified. I want to give any advice. And, you know, I'm still navigating and learning as as I go. Right. Um, but the most useful thing that I that I hope you can take away is uh, make sure you're dedicating some time to reflect and be very honest with yourself about what it is you want. Um, and early in your career, and most of the people listening to this, I am very sure are, are overachieving, you know, and you guys are going to have great, amazing careers, right? But make sure whatever you're pursuing is what you actually want. Um, make sure that you stay grounded in your why, um, because over time, you're going to have a lot of different people in your ear. You're going to have a lot of different mentors. You're going to have a lot of life is going to happen. You're going to have a lot of job offers. You're going to have a lot of job denials and, re- and rejections. And if you aren't grounded and, and honest with yourself about what it is you want and what your non-negotiables are, you're going to find yourself compromising and you're going to find yourself in a situation where you regret and you don't ever want to regret. And I, But I promise you, you will never, ever, 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 ever regret doing what you know is best for you. You know, and as long as you hold yourself, yourself true to that and you're super honest with yourself, you know, and you don't put pursuit of a career, pursuit of a check, pursuit of a title, pursuit of anything like that over you, you'll be great. Um, and I think that's the lesson that I have to remind myself every day. Um, and that's how you keep your passion under control. Um, and I hope that someone needed to hear that. Wow, that's a Perfect wrap up. I can't even say any, anything else to that. I think that was, a, again, perfect way to kind of end off the podcast. Well, Josh, I want to thank you for, for taking the time to, to speak with us today and share some amazing insight with the listeners. I can definitely uh, probably agree that we we all really enjoyed the episode for sure. 
No, I appreciate it. Thank you. It's, uh, it's fun being on the other side now, and I'm glad to see the podcast still going. And uh, congrats to everything that you've done and all of your amazing endeavors. And uh hope to see you a big-time leader real, real soon. I'm sure I'll meet you at the top at some point. <laughs> um, well, um, we just want to – of course. We just want to thank all of our listeners for tuning into the podcast. And if you all enjoyed the episode, please make sure to like and subscribe.